As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hello and welcome to The Ruck. I'm Owen Slots, and we are not going to talk about the weekend's rugby today. We're not going to talk about who scored amazing tries and we are not going to talk about the players who played well. This is a Ruck special and we're going to talk instead about whether it was actually safe for them to play at all. This is a podcast that we hope can help inform and enlighten. It's the start of the new season. Uh, schools and clubs will be putting out their first teams this weekend, next weekend. So I think it's a time that we can put into context the conversation, is rugby too dangerous? Should my kids be playing rugby? What is tolerable risk? And what could be done to make rugby safer? Indeed, should we change it at all? And if you tinker with the game, do you actually destroy it? In this sport, we can't pretend that we have it right, but by talking about it, is there also a danger of spreading the fear? 12 people died last year from taking selfies, but no one calls that a dangerous sport. So we want to put that into perspective. So. We've got some really well-informed people here to discuss this, and I'm going to start by introducing Alistair Hargreaves, former Saracens player, Saracens captain, lifted tons of trophies, four times capped by South Africa. Alistair, it's nearly two years ago that you retired, age 30. Just to begin to kick us off, can I ask you to describe the circumstances, what made you step away from the game? First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, great to be here. I, I think yeah, my situation happened towards the end of, of my career. I got a couple of concussions um, in a short space of time. Um, so kind of back to back. So concussion, had about a two week break via the protocol at the time, came back, got concussed again, and then um, went to the club and said, I'm concerned about this. Had about a six month layoff, got handled really well by Saracens at the time. And what I found was even after that six months, my ability to cope with knocks had just decreased dramatically. So the more and more contact I took, um, you know, I was, I was just getting knocked out more and more frequently. So I came down to a point where I had about four or five concussions in the space of about 18 months. Wow. Had a little kid and just thought, you know what, there's, there's more to life than this. It's not worth the risk. But, you know, my kind of experience within the rugby community and how I was treated and how my situation was dealt with um, was incredibly positive. Yeah, so I've been retired for two years and no, no, no issues off the back of it, um, but I'm very passionate about player welfare and I'm, and I'm passionate about this, this discussion. When you were struggling with the concussions, can you describe how it felt like and, and how long after a, a bad concussion, if you like, you, you were experiencing symptoms? Yeah, it's, it's hard to measure and it differs from, from player to player, from person to person. At first, you know, the first couple I could shrug off quite easily, kind of seven to ten day turnaround. You just feel a bit, a little bit off kilter, um, a little bit dizzy. As time went by, I'd have an incident and it'd just take me longer and longer to bounce back. So ultimately, I think the last one, it took me a good kind of month to six weeks before I felt 100%. And it's quite weird because I didn't necessarily feel terrible at all times, but I just knew I was kind of 5% off. And uh, and that's a, that's, that's a lot when, you, when you're talking about uh, small margins in a, in a highly professional competitive game. But would that be headaches or worse? I mean, you hear, you hear all sorts of stories from different players. You say everyone experiences it differently. And I think that's something to do with what part or side of the head you you're, you you get hit hit on but uh, would you experience those sort of things yeah I think headaches initially yeah um, but then for me it was more of a vision thing a bit of blurriness a bit of dizziness so I felt kind of if I was defending for example that's where I picked it up the most I just lost a bit of my peripheral vision and I'd be making mistakes that I wouldn't usually make I was just a little bit slower so it's often hard to quantify and if you look at the list of, of symptoms I mean it, it goes on for pages and pages and pages so quite hard to define, and I think that is really one of the biggest kind of cruxes of the problem is that it's very hard to put a mark on what concussion is and 
how it affects different people. Do you have an idea how many concussions you think you experience? Over my career? Well, I mean, it only became prevalent, I'd say, in the last maybe three to four years of my career. So from like kind of 2013, 2014 right. onwards, I'd say I probably had a good seven or eight of my last four years, four seasons as a, as a professional. And before then, yeah, I mean, I, I think growing up, playing from kind of under 18 ranks or probably from school ranks, I, I mean, a lot. But it just wasn't it wasn't a real big talking point at the time. You know, you got concussed people and say, geez, you don't look well. Yank you off the field and you're back at training on Monday if you feel up to it. One of the interesting uh, uh, or, or troubling sides of this debate is we don't know what that's going to translate into later in life. I mean, do you, do you think about that? Do you, you, do you have concerns about that, about what concussion might uh, herald for you later? Or, or, or can you not really... <laughs> not really go yeah, there. I mean, I think in your darker moments, you, you certainly think about it. Um, but I wouldn't say it keeps me awake at night. Yeah. You know, I kind of um, had all the evidence and the science that we kind of, um, that we are exposed to these days to, to inform my decisions and to inform my decision to carry on playing and to play through it and to accept the risks of playing rugby. And if I had the chance, I'd, I'd do it again. So, yeah, I think there's always a bit of concern, but, you know, we don't know. There's no science at this stage, I think, you know, and, and I'm sure Ross will talk about it to really give us a, a, a very clear picture of how this this might all end up in 10, 20, 30 years' time. I feel positive. Um, now, I'd like to introduce my two other guests. Uh, Sam Peters, Sunday Times journalist. Certainly more than any other reporter in this country, Sam, you've highlighted the dangers of concussion in rugby. That didn't necessarily make you popular, did it? With you. <laughs> <laughs> no, with, with the game in general. I mean, people weren't happy to hear your message for quite a while. That's probably a fair comment, yeah. Um, I think it probably made me popular with some of the players who um, were experiencing these issues and understood that when they spoke to me it would be handled sensitively and realistically and not mm. overly dramatically. I mean sure it, it was not the message that rugby necessarily wanted to hear but that doesn't uh, like stop me from thinking I've done absolutely the right thing and I stand by what I've done and I think the fact that someone like Al can stand here now and talk in the way that he has and how many players have subsequently come forward before and after Al and said they've experienced these symptoms, these problems and the way that rugby's moved to a position where clearly the management of it is so much better than it was five, six, seven years ago perhaps vindicates what I decided to do. Yeah, well, absolutely. Well done to you on that. My other guest is Ross Tucker, probably the number one knowledge on concussion in rugby anywhere in the world. Uh, Ross is a sports scientist. He is the lead consultant to World Rugby and to the RFU on this subject. Ross, you've probably seen through the video analysis more concussive tackles than anyone else on the planet, I'm guessing. <laughs> now, that must have been great fun for you. I don't know if I'd agree that I'm the number one authority on this. I think I know a very specific thing about a very specific injury, so I certainly wouldn't want to make claims to know any more than that. But, but yeah, we did a study where actually a guy called Ben Hester, who's a game analyst, he, he looked at 4,000 tackles, 464 of which caused concussions, and then we did the analysis on that. So he's, he's probably the engine of that study and the guy who's seen more than anyone. But yeah, I did the analysis on it to try and inform the decisions that the sport can make to prevent them. Because like what Sam and Alistair have both spoken about is that where rugby's evolved a lot since even the 2011 World Cup was it recognized that these injuries were happening and weren't being picked up. And so the management of a concussion once it happened was not where it needed to be. And I think there has been significant progress in that regard. But just like the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take says that prevention is better than cure, we now have to move on to saying how do we stop them from happening in the first place. Now we don't want to neglect 
the management side of it, but the question at the moment, the burning question for the sport is can we reduce the number of them? And that's where the data and the evidence has been so important to try and inform decisions. Without, without changing the DNA of the sport, can we reduce the risk in the sport? Before we go into the analysis that you, you've done and your conclusions, I think it's fair to say that you're still a supporter of the game. You, you could be standing outside it saying this game is too dangerous and, and it shouldn't be played anymore. Uh, it's fair to say that you, you work for the world, for world rugby, so that puts, puts it a little bit of context there. But, but you, t- you t- told me before you came on, you, you still support this game. You would have your children playing the game. Is, would that be correct? Yes, I, I support it and I do the work that I do because I believe that it can, the risk can be reduced and I think that that's a worthy cause. I could take the approach of standing on the outside and pointing at the problems, but then I reckon I wouldn't be effective in trying to change them. And so I'm, I'd, rather, I'd rather work at being a constructive source of change, even if that means I have to get in the ring and potentially lose a little bit of independence. I do my best to retain as much as I can of that independence. But, but yeah, I, I support it. I don't have children who have to make that decision yet, or I have to make that decision, but I think at the time I would. But I would put certain conditions in place, and hopefully by the time that happens, many of those conditions will be realised on a global scale, so that they can play the sport as safely as possible. Ross, your your work is largely behind some changes that have, that have come into the game in the last six months. Well, they're not changes; they're trials. So there are three different sets of tackle trials that are ongoing in the game at the moment, which are all involved in assessing how we can make the tackle safer they all involve trying to bring the height of the tackle down can you explain the statistical analysis that, that brought you to that conclusion every time a player leaves the field either permanently for a concussion or for the sideline or field screen there is a record that's created of that HIA now we have by virtue of the fact that we collect all those cases we have a library of those head injuries and we also have the video of those head injuries so in 2015 we set about doing a study to say can we describe how these injuries happen? Because if we understand how they happen, then we can figure out ways to try and stop them from happening. Without understanding the mechanism, you are guessing as to how you prevent them. And so that study was initiated in 2015. And as I mentioned a few minutes back, we looked at 4,500-odd tackles, 464 of them caused head injuries, and we try to understand everything about the tackle. How many players were involved? What direction were they moving in? How fast were they going in? What was the height of the contact? The body position of the players? Who was accelerating? Who wasn't? And what that study basically then does is it gives us, let's call it eight risk factors. We, we basically then work out what you can visualize as a propensity of risk. So on the left-hand side are, what are the tackle events that are low risks, so are less likely to cause a head injury? And on the right-hand side are the things that are high risk and therefore more likely to cause head injury. So for instance, and and people can go and read this, studies have been published in scientific journals, high-speed, front-on, active shoulder, upright, higher contact tackles are much more likely to cause a head injury than a low-speed, lower, side-on angle, whatever it is, passive shoulder tackle. So when your analysis came out, there was a fair amount of shouting from from some ex-players saying, hang on a sec, I got concussed uh, when I tackled someone and, and, and my head hit their knee. Was that helpful or does that help for, inform the discussion? I mean, that, I don't know what you think think of that, Sam. That's sort of, when we make these, these statements, that there is a lot of shouting out there from people who feel very passionate about this in some ways the role of the media as well feeds into that and the sort of need for immediate reaction and of course people are going to come up with their sort of 
gut responses to it. And I think it's also really important to understand current players and ex-players kind of view of things but of course this is one of the difficulties for for Ross and researchers in the sport and anybody who looks to tinker or change anything around the sport there is always a kind of reaction to it I remember when the the scrum laws were being changed and the the what we used to call the hit was being taken out of the sport which actually only came into rugby well into the professional game there was a lot of outcry from props and everything that said you know this is crazy, we're changing the whole mm. fabric of the game and no one even really remembers the hit now and it's saved that that, that change, it's very sensible change brought about by solid research into injuries and neck injuries that were occurring to prop forwards uh, has significantly reduced the amount of spinal injuries and has also increased the number of scrums that actually stay up as well. So it's actually been a really positive thing and I think, you know, notwithstanding the fact there will always be response and reaction and that's interesting to read and totally valid what will play out here and what people like Ross are doing, um, they'll sort of hold their nerve, I'm sure. I was one of those players who ha- who reacted uh, to kind of the, the tackle law and myself and Ross had some, some words on, on Twitter. And I think we actually had a, a constructive conversation. <laughs> it's, it's so That's important good. to get together and to discuss these things because there are so many different opinions. There's so many moving parts. There's data and there's science, which is so important. And I'm a huge supporter of, of the work that the guys do in looking into the data, looking into the insight. But I also think it's important to try to figure out how you can draw the best conclusions from those data. When you in the in the years that you were playing, so you, you were a professional rugby player for twelve years. Uh, yeah. Would you say that throughout those twelve years, the hit, as Sam was just describing, became the the impact of your tackle became increasingly important? Because if you went back to say twenty five years ago, at the point Sam was making, your tackle would be what might have been called a soak tackle. You would tackle a player and he'd fall over your shoulder. Whereas now a professional rugby player is you're, you're encouraged to move forward. So line speed, I, I gather Ross is 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 dangerous. High, raises the the danger of, of a tackle. Yes, yeah, so but, but you can't take line speed out of the game. But or you can't legislate against it. It'd be very hard to. But we, would you say, Alistair, that, that you, you've sort of lived through a sort of slight change of what your tackle is recognised to be? Players are getting better. The game's getting more technical. And um, and part of that, and one of the beauties of the game, is the collision aspect of it. You know, yeah. So can we be a contact sport rather than a collision sport? Absolutely not, in my opinion. You know, And I think it's interesting when Ross talks about prevention. You know, Can, can we prevent these? Can we reduce the amount of uh, instances? But can we change the DNA of the game so we start encouraging people to make passive tackles no because it's in the nature of the game is it's about territory it's about gain line it's about momentum people need to get hit it's mm. it's, it's, it's that kind of sport <laughs> and and that's and that's part of the reason why we love it you know like I, and I, I i believe firmly in that so i'm all for trying to find ways to prevent it but i get terrified when i see you know f- like kind of changes that can fundamentally change the fabric of the game and that's how i reacted and i think you know and i'll, I'll put i'll throw sam under the bus you know, when, when sam interviewed me the kind of headline came out and said, oh, x rugby player doesn't think that the law will change concussion. In context was, I don't think this one thing by itself is going to change it. Like Ross says, there's so many moving parts, yeah. there's so many ways it happens, and I think we have to look at these things holistically. So can I just say that this, this discussion we're having now, the four of us, is identical to the one that was had when this data was presented. Because the process, and I can't stress this enough, and I'm not trying to duck the blame here, but once we've, once we've developed our spectrum of risk and we say... You've, you've said now that front on high speed active shoulder tackle where players are upright is by far the most dangerous situation in the sport. That's Let what the data just showed. You. Let's just so what the data showed that the tackler how much more at risk than the, than the, the, the man he's tackling. Right. So 
helicopter view, tackles cause the most HIAs. They also yeah. have the highest risk. So per 1,000 tackles, there are more head injuries than per 1,000 rucks, per 1,000 malls, per 1,000 lineouts, etc. Within that tackle situation, the tackler is 2.6 times more likely to be injured than the ball carrier. Now, that was maybe the most important principle finding in the whole thing because how do you legislate to protect a player who himself initiates the act that injures him? So, so in other words, the law is almost exclusively written from the perspective of the ball carrier. People think of high tackles to try and protect the ball carrier. Our data was showing that the higher contact tackle was more likely to injure the tackler. So now we have to think laterally about what do we do to try and drive the tackler down for his own benefit. And how, how much more dangerous was the high tackle? And, and when we say high tackle, we're not talking about high tackle in law because when there was a legally defined high tackle, in other words, penalized for being high, mm-hmm. it was 80 times more likely to cause a head injury. But the, the person likely to experience head injury was the ball carrier. So what we did was we said, right, let's take all the head injuries where the contact is below the sternum or the line of the armpit, if you wish, and all the head injuries where it's above that line. We found that the risk of a head injury to the tackler, put aside the ball carrier, the tackler, is 4.3 times higher when it's a higher contact tackle. Legal, but high, compared to when it's below that. So you're 4.3 times more likely to be injured if you tackle higher. And you're 50% more likely to be injured if you're upright in the tackle compared to bent at the waist. And Mm -hmm. so we brought together a group of coaches, refs, former players, current players to a two-day meeting and we had a conversation exactly like this one. A lot of people have looked at this analysis and they've assumed that there's a a bunch of sports scientists who sat in front of laptops with, you know, big brains and pointy heads and, and have come to this decision. But actually you've presented this information to the likes of Eddie Jones, Paul O'Connell, Steve Hansen, and they've helped develop the conclusions that you made. Right, so and then you say you say they assume big brains and pointy heads. It's small small brains point I think many people's minds. We have this two day long meeting in which we present to them all the data. We say these are the risk factors. This is what is more likely to cause a head injury. Which of them should we focus on and how do we shift from right to left? High risk to low risk. So for instance and this goes to the discussion we we're having a moment ago and I hope I do justice to it. There are more injuries in the sport, head injuries, from head to hip collisions than there are head to head. But head to head is more dangerous. So in your introduction, you said 12 people die in selfie deaths every year. There are five deaths due to shark attacks. So 12 versus five. Does that make a selfie more dangerous than a shark? Of course not. Because so many more people are exposed to a selfie than to a shark. So cars are far safer than motorbikes, even though more people die in car accidents than motorbikes. That's because a hundred times more people drive cars than do motorbikes. So, so we, we have to look at it as a risk per thousand events. And so the head to hip tackle, when, when a tackler is bent at the waist, often he gets himself on the wrong side, his head strikes the hip of the ball carrier. That, that tackle causes a lot more head injuries, but the head-to-head is much more dangerous. One in 87 times that there's a head-to-head, you'll get an injury. One in 570 times head-to-hip. So you're six and a half times more likely to get injured in a head-to-head contact. The fundamental principle that came out of that meeting is that we have to get the tackler's head out of the ball carrier's airspace, head's airspace, right? Because we don't want those heads mm. sharing airspace. So how do you do that? You've got to get the tackler down for his own safety, his or her own safety. 
And how do you do that? Well, that's technique, that's law, that's law change. And that's where it came up. And so that's where and we, we had a, what I thought was a civil conversation on Twitter about is it going to achieve the effect? I don't know. The evidence suggests that if we get the tackler down, it will achieve the desired effect. It won't remove the risk, but it'll reduce it because it's four times more dangerous to be up there than down here. Can I jump in and throw the, the cats sure. amongst the pigeons a little bit? So, that, so my reaction was like, I know concussion is a big thing, and I think more holistically, player welfare is, mm-hmm. is a big thing. We have a whole long off season. We're not exposed to the kind of the hours and the weeks that you put into the states. It's, it's, it's great to hear about it, and I think it's awesome that we're doing it. But I'm sitting on my couch, and the big announcement for the season is to look after players better from a professional standpoint, right down to amateur, is change the tackle line by kind of you know 10 centimeters. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's myopic. In the bigger picture, there's <coughs> more we can be doing for player welfare. You know, in the, in the bigger scheme of things. So although I'm, I'm certainly not against trialing it, my kind of reaction was more about if we're going to do this one thing and it's just, you know, the tackle line, which is already a badly reft area, we're going to move it down by a hypothetical 10 centimetres. I'm like, is that going to change player welfare concussion by itself? No. Are there more things we're doing? Because if we just make one small change a season, it just becomes a box-checking exercise. I yeah. sort of agree with you there, Alistair. I th- it feels to me that, that rugby is moving in the right direction, but maybe very slowly, and I think that, that I sort of foresee over the next decade the next thing might be the ruck and then the high ball contest, etc. We're slowly going through. You, you think that this is maybe myopic to think it'll save rugby in one go of course it won't but I know that's not what Ross is saying I, I, exactly. on Twitter no, you've got 160 if, characters if you, if, you were, <laughs> if you were running world rugby tomorrow and, and you could decide I mean what, what would you be doing to, to help player welfare well, for me my, in my opinion and it's only my opinion I think there's still so, so many quick wins in just the recognition of concussion and the treatment of it and I, I, I kind of come from a school of thought that goes I think concussion is part of the game and, I'm, and maybe that sounds crazy. We should do what we can to reduce it, but I don't think we're ever going to take it out of the game without fundamentally changing it. So I believe that there's still a lot of work to be done about treatment of concussion and about recognition of it and getting the stigma kind of out of the mindsets of people that go, oh, this is a toughness thing. This is a hard man thing. Shrug it off and get back on the park. And I still see so much of that happening. So I think there's so many things we can do there. That? Absolutely. I mean, we'd be, we'd be lying to ourselves if we said, we don't see incidents occurring in games week in, week out, where we see a player and there is a suspicion of concussion and he carries on playing, right? Yes. Yeah, and also some sure. really ill-informed comments that are still made. I mean, you only had to see Steve Diamond's response to the Tom Curry uh, incident last week where Tom was knocked out after four minutes. Steve, straight after the game, completely didn't have the sort of information at hand but just shrugged off the injury said it's not it's not a big issue okay he's gone off in a neck brace but he's sitting up in the changing room and he's fine and I just think we could do with everyone just getting a bit more educated there's that's a, a sort of on-running piece for everyone but I'd like to just pick up on Al's theme there and just say you know yes uh, is it yes there two days ago England announced they've got four more pre-season internationals before the World Cup this year potentially I know it's a massive if but if England made the World Cup final could be 20 internationals in a calendar year that's on top of all the club games the guys play I mean but unless there's a and we've talked about this a number of times unless the professional players play significantly fewer games in a season this injury situation the concussion rate's going to stay sky high and the guys are going to go into games really tired a lot of the time and therefore more prone to injuries, and that's been shown. And, and also the injuries that are occurring in training is, a, is an issue. Which How many games would you like to play a season, or do you think you should, players should generally be playing a season now? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit older and a bit stupider, maybe. Um, you know, I think you ask a young player, and that's, oh, I can play 35 games. You ask yeah. Mario Tojo from Saracens, and he'd say, 
there's no problem with playing more games because he's 23-year-old and he's in the athletic shape of his life. I th- and I think that's something I'd like to see the science on. It's probably closer to 20 than it is to 30, in my opinion. And then you've got to take into account how physical training's become. Mm. So that's something that I've seen a, a, a significant increase in, in my career is the intensity of training. You know, you go through match-like situations week in, week out. And, and that's why when it comes to these law changes, you can't ever expect a coach to sit there that needs a win on Saturday and say, mm. I'd like my guys to make more passive tackles and potentially concede an extra two metres in every collision because <laughs> yeah, it's safer so, for, the, mm. for, the, for, the, for the whole game. So that type of tackle was one of the risk factors we mm. looked at. And so when we met with the coaches and we said, right, can you change that? They said, next. Mm. You're not going to change that. You're not going to change the front on tackle because they want to dominate the gain line and therefore you want to forceful contact, dominate the, the, the tackle and drive the player backwards and so on. So we left all those alone and what we were left with was effectively, as I said, the, the low-hanging fruit. Now, what we're talking about now is very important because it, sh- it shifts towards load management and understanding how to educate people about that. Now, that is very much on the table. So... We've got a big project at the moment in collaboration with the Rugby Players Association to try and develop a, a tool that will help people to measure and manage load a little better. Because that's a easily controllable thing. You're both absolutely right. How can but you measure load? You measure training time and training intensity, and then you document it in arbitrary units, and then you quantify load. And there's some early but compelling data that... If the load is too low, the risk of injury is high, and if the load is too high, then the risk of subsequent injury increases. So it's one of those moderation arguments. And so a lot of teams are now starting to use that argument, and and we're trying to develop effectively a Ten Commandments of Load that we can implement across the world to try and change that and grow awareness and educate people because is that is that the next step change for world rugby to to limit you you effectively saying we're going to try and manage the amount of contact and training or the amount of high impact training we want to educate people about not just the contact aspect but the total load i don't know that we will be able to enforce it in the way that the nfl have analysts at every session counting the number of contacts and that, that's probably a little bit further away but for sure the education and awareness about load and trying to change that so that's another s- string in the bow as it were to try to reduce the injury risk through load management because that's absolutely the case and the the, the PRL injury surveillance report that comes out every year that's shown pretty clearly that more injuries now are happening in training than before and then what happens in training affects matches. Sam said earlier, players go into games fatigued. This is very difficult to measure, obviously, so it's theoretical only. But that is a major risk factor for injury, including concussion. So managing load might be the lever that has to be pulled or, or button that has to be pushed to try and reduce match injuries. And so that that's a, that is a priority area for us and the PRL and RFU at the moment. I, th- I think that's an absolutely fascinating space. And I think how data is driving change in sport generally but let's talk about rugby specifically is is really really interesting and and sort of finding what I think effectively Ross is saying a kind of sweet spot of preparation which the strength and conditioning guys can look at the medical guys can look at and ultimately the directors of rugby can look at where we're actually talking about here improving performance on the pitch and I think that's quite a an interesting kind of message to get across is is actually if you if the guys are prepared better and they're actually in the best physical condition the product for that awful term which is essentially the game and the, and what people mm. are paying to go and watch is going to be better and the NFL is obviously way ahead down the track in this and and is ultimately informing this whole discussion because the association between repetitive head injuries and early onset dementia that and that's 
been seen in the NFL. Nobody's saying anybody who gets a concussion will end up with early onset dementia, but it's, well, it seems to be a higher that's risk. That's what we can't measure. I mean, that's the sort of the big unknown of what we're talking about. It is, about, isn't but it? it's it's also the kind of elephant in the room that's driving a lot of this change. Yeah. That, that there was a massive payout in the NFL. You're talking more than a billion dollars to ex-players who are experiencing neurodegenerative problems as a associated with repetitive head knocks and you know i will restate nobody is saying if you've got a concussion you're going to develop problems later on but there's sam, just sam sam i right but that's like, that, so I mean, no, no, nobody not here nobody listening to no, nobody sensible right but yeah. there is an alarmist element to that debate in the same way that there's a denialist and element to that debate mm. and i've been to mm. like concussion consensus conferences and so forth and seen how the debate in the u.s is polarized and mm. so there are some people on one side saying that there's nothing to see here and there are other people on the other side saying that this is a, a massive health crisis and one concussion is life-threatening so mm. there are some but no one's sensible right well there's there's, there's fear in the unknown right yeah. you know we all sit there and go geez well, i don't know what's going to happen in 20 years time it could be hundred percent and and actually there could be an issue but we don't know and that's why this discussion is really interesting and that's why it kind of evokes so much emotion and passion and it's a good thing and i don't don't think we should shy away from rugby as a product to go back to your comment Mm -hmm. like it is a product and and um and we want this to be an incredibly attractive game for people to watch for people to want to play and want to support and that's why i think like as as we if we if we kind of maybe maybe a little bit off track and and excuse me for going on a tangent but when these little kind of small incremental rule changes happen every year, I always go back to saying, well, are we making the game more accessible, easier to watch, easier to understand? Because if we want to see growth in our game, I think we need to be simplifying things rather than making it more and more technical. So I think you have to put the product kind of into the conversation. Like how do these little changes we make uh, impact the game as a uh, as a sport, as entertainment? You know? But I guess the, the tension is between the commercial imperative and the uh, player welfare aspect. And that's where we're kind of, where exactly. is the, where's and, the acceptable? And, and it's a triangle. So it's commercial on one side, player welfare on the other. And then and then to, to pull Al up on something you said earlier is you want to make the changes. You want to see effective real change, but you don't want to fundamentally change the game, right? Mm. But I'd argue that when you say that lowering it by 10 centimeters isn't going to do enough, and you, you called it myopic earlier, would you lower it by more? And does that not start to encroach upon your principle of let's not fundamentally change the game? So there's a tension there between... How do we cause big changes without fundamentally changing the game? So Owen asked earlier, what would you see them do? And I'm still curious about what else you might, because you answered one of those, I thought very thoughtfully, but what else is there? I mean, so so look, and, I, and I'm not going to kind of sit here and profess to know the answers, and, and I obviously haven't been exposed to the amount of data. So, so I guess my role in this conversation is not to come up with solutions, but just to kind of sense check, pressure test, and even kind of, you know, if, if it frustrates, I, I, I'm not against that. You know, I think... What would it be like if we accepted the fact that let's not do the 10 centimeters low, let's, let's accept the fact that there are going to be some dangerous tackles and let's really focus in on treatment of those collisions. So, I mean, that for me, I was like, well, when I saw the, the, the news kind of um, report come out, I just thought, well, this looks like a bit of a box-taking exercise. Now, that's not a go to you because you've been given a specific task to achieve you know, a, a higher or a lesser rate of concussion through tackles, which is great. Mm-hmm. But again, I'm looking at this as an ex-player and as a game at the whole. I'm like, is this the highlights of what we're doing for player welfare this season? A 10-centimeter tackle kind of uh, change? So I, I, so I don't have the answers, but I just, in of itself, I just think there's probably, you spoke about low-hanging fruits. I still believe that uh, in, in treatment, there might be a, uh, you know, more to gain. What, um, what will we do to make the, the game safer without changing it incrementally? 
well, where do we think the game will be in 10 years time to make it safer because this is a debate that's going to carry on it's not going to stop just on the back of a 10 centimeter change as we as, we, as we've noticed what what do you foresee down the line in terms of changes make the game different uh, Sam's point on the scrum laws was very interesting because I think that is a really good change. That's really positive, and that has made the game more attractive and, and better. And it's it's been very easy to identify the fact that there have been significantly less neck injuries in scrums because of that law change. I, I still don't know if if we'll be able to go back in a season's time, and, and hopefully we can, Ross. And, and you'd know more than me, but is this law going to significantly change concussions? Or are people just going to find a different way to make those high collision impacts and? adapt to this law and still make those kind of impacts I, I don't know but it just seems a little bit to me uh, like it's it's not big enough it's not bold enough you know it's not it's not brave enough maybe I, I don't know but wouldn't something bold run the risk of fundamentally changing the yes. sport that's the yeah. so that is the tension that we all struggle with and, and and we do it's not like people are just flinging out ideas and saying let's be let's turn rugby into a giant test tube no one wants to do that either so there is a there is a challenge there about how do you change something without fundamentally changing something else and and that's a that's a big issue so where will it be in 10 years i i, I don't know i mean you wrote a piece oh and like two years ago saying lower the height of the tackle and you would have been run out of town yeah you were well there was there was some support but but mainly people were saying hang on a sec you know and now two years later we're saying it's not enough so isn't that a fundamental paradigm shift that two years ago something unacceptable is no longer seen as enough? So who knows where we'll be in 10? I, d- I don't know. But the same things that were off limits two years ago are now being discussed. Even the fact that we can have this podcast and talk about it is a sign of progress. And we can be, we can be critical when we all sit on a Saturday and we see a player experience a head injury and the coach dismisses it or the player isn't removed when we all think he should have. Five years ago, that wasn't happening. So... I see that as significant progress, even though it casts sometimes the sport in a negative light. So I, I, I don't know whether there'll be more law change. To answer your question, <laughs> without sounding like a pointy head, if we run the numbers and we make certain assumptions, if we could lower the height or lower the number of higher contact tackles by 50%, concussion rates would drop by 15 to 20%. So that would bring them down from currently once a match on average to three or four every five matches now that to me is progress can it's it not ever a solution though, is can it? it ever be zero no, no. I, so I, i'm with alistair like you're never going to make it zero like ross we, we're probably saying a lot of the same things you know yeah. like because yeah. I, I the the situation you've just described where in 10 years time the game looks the same but we've managed to find small changes that reduce concussion by 15 to 20 percent that's awesome and and i come from a um and I know this sounds this sounds like a contradiction in terms, but a, a very positive experience with concussion because of the way that I was treated, because of the way that my, how the club handled my situation, mm. and and I think rugby has has progressed dramatically mm. in its in its player welfare. But I, w- I want to see that continue to kind of sh- uh, like change and to grow and to increase, and that's why I do think it's always important to like have this friction and to have the conversations. And this for me is a a really positive conversation and all the work yeah. that Ross is doing. I think it's brilliant. So, Sam, do you think that the, the game will gradually change or sanitise might, might be the, the the wrong word or might be the right word? I mean, you hear this thing, which I think the most infuriating phrase I, I hear on quite a repeated basis is rugby's gone soft. Uh, I mean, that's so patently not true. I mean, rugby's gone hard, that's rugby the problem. Rugby has gone seriously hard. It is a tough tough sport to play and I've got ultimate respect for the guys that take the field but ultimately what people see on television does determine how many people parents allow their kids to play and we all sat around this table 
love the game of rugby. We'd all like the game to grow, um, but we actually have to be realistic that if the ge- if it's not managed well and concussion outcomes are really poor and we see incidents like we did with George North in a few years ago like we did with George Smith against the Lions 2009 that's a really terrible message players going back onto the field can cut where we're at now I think we're seeing far fewer of those incidents and that can only be a good thing and if rugby can present itself which it is doing I think more and more although there's still quite a lot of work to do as a sport that takes concussion really seriously understands how to recognise it uh, and understands that players shouldn't play on if there's a suspicion that they are concussed that's a really good message and that's a you know as a parent I'd want to hear that this is the ruck and we'll be back in a minute iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. Welcome back to The Ruck. Can we try and put this in, in a broader perspective? Because I think a, a, a lot of, as you say, people will see the George North incident or they'll see the collisions in, in the premiership and they'll and they'll go, well, you know, do, do we really want our kids to be, to be playing that? So, so I, I think there is a responsibility within this conversation is A, to acknowledge that two things. One, there's a, there is a clear difference between the professional game and the amateur game. And because there's um, a worrying concussion level in the professional game, that that doesn't mean that that schoolboys are are under anything like the same threat, but they are under a threat which we have to address. And also, I think we have to put it in perspective also against other sports, rugby versus I don't know equestrianism or rock climbing or or as you say, taking a selfie. So in a sense, rugby's problem is that so many people are exposed for so long. So one rugby match exposes thirty people for eighty minutes, and so therefore the number of injuries in the sport are quite high. But again, when you bring it back down to what you should, which is risk per thousand hours and so on. Then it starts to look a lot more similar to many of those activities. And the severity of the injury in rugby compared to equestrian and equestrianism, rock climbing and so forth is considerably lower also. That's not an excuse to say let's leave the injuries alone. You still have to manage those. But rugby is on, on par with other contact sports, slightly lower than the NFL, uh, rugby league. The problem, and, and we were alluding to this earlier, is that rugby documents its risk. Mm. Some of those other sports <coughs> don't do that. So... The moment you document the risk, you put the magnifying glass on yourself, hmm. and then you're damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing, right? Because now you're pointing out that there's a risk. Yeah, like having this conversation, yeah. we're telling people there's a risk. Yeah, exactly. So we, we should rather be quiet, right, and not tell anyone. Well, no. You have to have the conversation, and then let people decide whether that risk is acceptable to them. Horse riding in the UK, 10 deaths a year. I mean, you know, if, if you said... 10 people die from playing rugby in the UK every year, then, you know, the, the game would stop overnight. They don't document all the injuries. Those are just the severe ones that you hear about because they're fatal. 
Yeah. So, and, and boxing similar. They don't document concussion in the same way, even in the NFL. And then they measure it differently. So they're very difficult to compare. But is the sport surveying the risk, and is it communicating that risk, and is it caring for those at risk? Those are the three questions that matter. And the question as to whether the risk is acceptable, as I said, is philosophical. And you're 100% right. The risk in the community game, and especially the junior game, is considerably lower. And so there's a degree of translation from the professional game across to the community game that misleads people into fear that need not really exist. I, I sort of agree with that, but I think it has to be appended a little bit that um, one thing that, that schoolboy rugby, um, there's been a big change in schoolboy rugby, they see how athletes have got bigger and stronger mm-hmm. uh, in the professional level, that's filtered down and there's absolutely no doubt that uh, injury levels have gone up on, in mm-hmm. schoolboy rug- rugby as well. And that's a space that, that isn't actually really being documented unless I'm, I'm, I've missed something there and I, I mean... I think I've, I've mentioned to you before, Owen, I did a little bit of back of the fag packet research a little while ago and looked at the England schools team, the under-18 team that took the field in 2016 against Wales and compared that to the England team that took the field in 1990 World Cup final against Australia. And the England schools team, so we're only talking about how many years? 28 years difference? You can't put this down to just natural evolution, but the England schools team were per man two kilos heavier per player than that 1990 World Cup team wow, under Will Carley. That's extraordinary. And that, that, that's... That's the change. But, but so, so is their nutrition, yep. so is their training, uh, yep. so is their treatment from a physio, from a medical perspective. Well, These guys are actually treated like professionals from a young age as well, so that kind of counteracted. Well, it? you'd hope so, but you can't deny that by being bigger and faster and stronger that the collisions are, are bigger. I mean, Would that, you, oh, sure. like on what Sam's saying, if, if, you, if there was a way to make players five kilograms smaller, would you be for it? There's a way to make players fight. That's, that's, a, that's interesting an interesting question. question. Yeah. If there was um, a, if there was a lever we could like pull or a string, well, we you could, could have a to- you could have a total weight limit for a team, for instance. For instance, yeah. Would you take it? Jeez, that's interesting. Um, no, probably not. You because know, I, 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 I don't know why. I just I just think I suppose it just becomes super technical then, and 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 I think we'd probably adapt. And you might have a lighter player that's incredibly strong and still able to achieve those collisions. And it'd be an interesting exercise to to, to see. Who actually makes the most powerful collisions? What what weight kind of, uh, I suppose, demographic, if that's the word, do that, does that fit into? What it might not just be the big 140 kg guys. It's probably the 100 kg flankers who fly off the line, the Jacques Burgers from Saracen that go and clatter into people, you know, 50, you know, 50 times a game. Have you seen the argument that's come up half a dozen times in the last 12 months about re- reducing the number of substitutes available because that would then compel teams to keep players on the field for 80 minutes that have to get smaller and you could no longer bring on impact players in the literal sense of the word. I think that's very interesting. Uh, like I'd, I'd, I'd kind of be, I'd be interested in that conversation seeing that trial, you know, because mm. certainly you're 60 minutes in and you are, you know, literally, you know, lungs are burning, you're in pieces, some bloke comes off the bench rearing to go get his first cap and he is going to obliterate you. Mm. You know that's going to happen. So, but can I, but I, but can I, can I just quickly, I, I mean, answer your question about the ten years time? Yeah. Just as we think about this conversation, and I'll try frame it through the lens of like not professional, but my son who's going to be thirteen in ten years time. Like, what would I like to see the game look like? Well, I'd like to see it look like it is today. I'd like it to be simpler to understand. And what I'd like to, what I'd like to know is that what are the risks for my son playing? I want him to know the risks. I want him to understand it. I want him to accept those risks and make the decision. So he's got the information to make the decision that he plays. And whether he breaks his arm, pulls a hamstring, or gets concussed, I want to know that he's going to be looked after. 
You know, so so that that is like what 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 I suppose I I, I want to really drive home is that I'm almost saying like let's accept that these things are going to happen. Let's try prevent them, but let's just look after people better. Mm-hmm. Let's give them more and more information. Let's give Ross more of a platform to speak about the different ways that we're trialing things. But let's look after players, not just professionals, at all levels, and 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 equip them with the knowledge and the information to make smart decisions. That's a really interesting point. The, the informed choice is essentially what we're talking about, and I think where rugby has moved just light years ahead of actually almost any other sport in actually flagging up, as Ross has talked about, you're basically listing what the injuries are, cataloguing them, showing the graphs, how they change, and that's that's informing a lot of this discussion because of that really, really good RFU research document which comes out every year, which some of us bother to read, but it is quite dense, which is the injury audit or the injury surveillance programme, and actually just respond to that, give the message out that we are taking this seriously, and then you've got a choice. If the injury risk is there, it's presented to you, you have a choice, and I'd say probably 99% of certainly professional players, probably more than 99% of professional players, and a, and a very, very significant amount of amateur players would say, that's an acceptable risk for me, and I'm going to take it, and I'm going to go out and play. <coughs> You're a, um, a father of young, a young child. Yeah. Well, you, you would support um, your, your kid, your child, your future children playing? I, I played amateur rugby myself. I dislocated my shoulder about 25 times playing and had three reconstructions done on my left shoulder and packed in playing when I was 22. I would 100% play again myself. I loved it. Some of my longest standing friends are guys I played rugby with down the years. It's a great sport and I definitely would want my daughter to play, but under exactly the same terms that Al just described, which is that if she does get injured, she it got managed well. Um, mm. And people around her knew that what a concussion looked like and knew that if there was a suspicion that she was concussed, nothing is more important than her welfare and her health and Mm. she comes off the field and that goes under any circumstance and I guess the challenge for professional sport is where the stakes are so much higher those are the same by the way conditions I would have in place is first do no harm Mm. so teach the children how to play properly I do think there is a little bit around teaching the sport the technique and so forth that might be neglected sometimes but then once it's happened let's err on the side of caution you know recognise and remove concept because players Alistair said, you said earlier, like players are getting concussed and they stay on the field because the coach is either ignorant or doesn't understand the risk enough or doesn't care. Th- those are the people who have to be filtered out of the sport. Mm. And then from that point on, people know the risk. They know that when they encounter the problem, the injury, they'll be managed right. Then then we can all agree that we're, we're doing as much as we can at that moment. Gentlemen, listen, thank you very much. We've talked longer than I had ever intended, but I think we could go on for <laughs> another two days. Um, I, I'd just like to sort of finish up. I sort of, I think, I think we're all in agreement. So, uh, as a rugby journalist, I think there's a lot of responsibility on us at the moment to to set the, what we're talking about the risk in, in perspective. And uh, I I I hope that I'll never get to the stage when I when I have to say I don't think the sport I write about should be played anymore. And I'm I'm a, I'm a million miles away from that. But I just think it's so important the work that that Ross does to to try and nudge us in the right direction. I think it's so important that people like Alistair will talk about what's out there and how to make it better and that people like Sam will expose it and have people talking about it. So thank you very much, uh, everyone, for coming to talk today. This was a special episode of The Ruck. I hope you've enjoyed it and I wish anyone who's out there playing a very happy and safe season. Hold up. 
iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.